0: This is Play by Playcast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about Play by Play guys. For Play by Play guys, by I'm told, a Play by Play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play by Playcast, Todd Godet. Wait, the Motel Six guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel. Joel with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. <laughs> world of college football another edition of play-by-play cast here on a friday morning my name is joel godette thanks as always for clicking subscribe or download and joining us if you'd like to get in touch with the podcast uh please go ahead and shoot us a message on twitter you can find us at pxp cast or you can find us uh at joel godette that's my twitter at j-o-e-l-g-o-d-e-t-t feel free to reach out say hey um whatever uh love to hear from people uh, we always say that um, here on the podcast that, uh, that listen, that tune in, that enjoy it, that, that get something out of uh, what it is we've put together here over the last couple of months and, and glad uh, glad it's been worthwhile for other people. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed it. I've loved it. Uh, it's been a great opportunity for, for me to pick some brains, but glad that people out there are, uh, are enjoying it and getting something out of it as well. Eli Gold is our guest today, and Eli is a guy who has done a lot of things uh, one of which we cover in this conversation. Uh, Eli and I were on the phone uh, this week for nearly an hour, uh, the almost 50 minutes, maybe more than 50 minutes, talking about uh, play-by-play and, more specifically, play-by-play of the Alabama Crimson Tide. And uh, Eli's one of those guys that I feel like down the road, uh, we're almost at episode 20, I feel like by episode 80 or something. like I don't want to rehash uh i don't have to like retake people's time too quickly on this Uh, but i feel like eli is the kind of guy that uh, we want to have on this podcast again because uh we could do a whole podcast with eli about hockey play-by-play i i don't even know if we i'm trying to think if we even mentioned nascar like maybe once or twice at the very beginning here when we talk about when he moved down south uh but but eli was a guy who was so entrenched in nascar um it was funny. I was, I was in the office talking to my boss after I'd done the interview with with Eli, and I mentioned uh, who I had just spoken to on the phone, and he goes, Oh, NASCAR. Um, I'm not a big NASCAR guy. So when I think Eli Gold, I think Alabama football. Uh, different different horses for courses." Um, It all depends. So uh, if you're tuning in to hear some NASCAR talk, I I apologize. We don't have a lot of it uh, here on this podcast. But maybe somewhere down the road, we'll get Eli back on. We can do some NHL talk with him. We can do some NASCAR talk with him. Uh, A guy who's proven very versatile in his broadcasting career. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about that. We'll talk a little bit uh, about Nick Saban here in this podcast. I was very curious to find out what it's like working with Nick Saban. So we dive into that. And we dive into voice stuff, too, which if you're a regular listener, you know is a favorite topic uh, talking about how guys have developed their sound and how they develop uh, basically what they do, you know, their, their instrument, their voice. Eli is a guy that has a a naturally deep and gifted voice and really good diction, Uh, so we get into kind of where that came from, and uh, the answer might surprise you a little bit. So a lot of stuff to get to on this week's podcast with Eli Gold, but you click download to hear him, not me, so we'll dive right into it. Our first topic of discussion, Eli and I have one thing in common, and that is we are both Northeastern Jewish males who at a young age moved somewhere where there are less Jewish males. Uh, I I moved from, I'm from New Jersey, I now live in Indianapolis, which has a decent community, but um, it's not among the largest in the country uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And Eli uh, moved from Brooklyn down uh, down to Alabama and has done a lot of work down there, be it hockey or or minor league baseball or UAB in Alabama and certainly NASCAR and uh, the NHL and all that. Uh, So I wanted to start with that common thread. Uh, How does a young Jewish male from Brooklyn, New York, wind up in the deep south of America as an on-air radio talent?
1: Well, it uh, was very, very simple. Uh, I was broadcasting hockey up in New York, and i wanted to do more i wanted to do more than just hockey and uh, there were no jobs available at that time uh, in the world uh, marv albert and his brother al albert and his brother steve albert had all of the indoor sports covered in new york Uh, The reality was I wasn't going to be hired to do the Yankees or the Mets, the Knicks, or the the Giants or the Jets. So it was clear that even though I wanted to do more, (laughs) excuse me, there wasn't more to do that I was available to do or I could do in New York. So it was time to move. And that was also the time when the National Hockey League had a rival league called the World Hockey Association a second major league and uh, they went ahead and for a myriad of reasons moved one of their franchises from Toronto to Birmingham, Alabama and I applied for the job wanting to be in the majors and I was able to get the job and I moved to Birmingham and I have been there ever since so uh, the move was first brought about because of my uh, broadcasting hockey and I've stayed uh, since then.
0: What was that like, just from a a culture shock perspective, uh, more on the personal level than the professional level, making that kind of a move?
1: Well, uh, I I had no uh, pushback as far as anything of a religious nature. Uh, That wasn't a problem. And quite honestly, I was ready to make the move. Uh, I was tired of New York City. I was tired of the hassles, tired of the traffic, tired of the hustle and bustle and all of that so to me it was a wonderful breath of fresh air coming down to a community that was not huge by any stretch of the imagination a community where you had rush minute instead of rush hour <laughs> and a and a community that was you know had a lot of trees open spaces a lot of green you know and so on nobody hunked their horn uh, it was just a breath of fresh air and i did make a conscious decision That I was not going to be the ugly New Yorker who came in and bullishly said, you know, this is how we do it in New York and this is how it has to be done. I realized that I was coming in on somebody else's turf and I was the one who was going to have to adjust. So, you know, and then after a little while, I'd say, look, if I thought I had a better idea, I was comfortable in, in, in putting my idea forward. But uh, it was really very, very refreshing to me uh, getting out of uh, the hassles of New York City, which is the only thing I'd ever known until I had started traveling. And when I started traveling and I saw that there was more to the world than just that concrete jungle, uh, it was really uh, a very, very nice Change. Yes, there was a culture change, but it was a very nice change. And, of course, the funniest thing, Joel, is when I came down here, I knew, and I was a big sports fan, but I knew nothing about the college game. Uh, college football in New York City in those days meant Columbia University. And God bless them, they were 0-11 every year. They played at the Baker Bowl uh, in front of 12 people. Uh, you know, they, the Rutgers wasn't even Rutgers. You know, there was no college football. You'd see the occasional Notre Dame game at Yankee Stadium. But the only collegiate sports of significance was St. John's University basketball. So when I came down south, I didn't understand this obsession with college football. I mean, I was used to watching the Yankees and the Mets, the Knicks and the Nets, the Giants and the Jets, the Rangers and the Islanders. I couldn't understand why you wanted to watch a, a, an 18-year-old kid do something on Saturday when you could wait to see the pros do it on Sunday. So that was one of the biggest adjustments right there uh, as far as the sports culture uh, of, of New York City versus Birmingham, Alabama.
0: What was that, that uh acceptance, I guess, like for you and and, and decision in a professional standpoint, eventually that that was kind of where you were going to make your name is uh, walk me on that process of falling in love, I guess, in some nature with college athletics.
1: Well, it was just, uh, it happened. Uh, It just happened the first time I went was take, I was taken to an Alabama game at Legion field here in Birmingham. And I was ready to leave at halftime. I mean, I really was. I was with a couple of people who had no intention of leaving, so I had to stay for the whole game. But I just did not embrace it. Uh, I was sitting there watching the Alabama Crimson Tide play the Miami Hurricanes. I was sitting there thinking about, you know, watching the Giants and the Jets on the tube the next day. Um, then eventually, it became you know, very obvious uh, if you wanted to be involved in sports and in the conversations and the water cooler talk and what have you, uh, you had to get with the program collegiately. And, of course, at that point, Alabama was winning on a regular basis, as they are again now. Uh, so I just uh, decided to follow the team that was winning, and uh, and that was it. And one thing led to another. But, you know, my work at that point when I came down here as I said, was with hockey. I started I was already doing NASCAR work. I was hired to be uh, the voice of the Birmingham Barons, the double A baseball affiliate of the Detroit Tigers. And I was doing some sports talk. Uh, so, you know, I was able to uh, keep myself occupied without, you know, going and start raving mad about not being able to pick up and head to Madison Square Garden on a given night.
0: I want to get into to some of that uh, and and being able to do so many different things. What was kind of your your path and and when you when you did each thing and added something new and, and looked for something new, did you kind of have a goal in mind of where you wanted it to get you? And and hey, I want to do minor league baseball because this will help me in this area, or maybe it'll help push me toward a, a baseball track. How did that? How did you think your track well, was playing out as it played out?
1: I, I really didn't know. Uh, I wanted to be in the major leagues for everything. Uh, That's what I wanted. Uh, You know, I I moved down here to Birmingham, and very shortly thereafter, uh, I went into the National Hockey League. Okay, so not quite concurrently, but within a year of coming down to Birmingham, I was hired to do the television for the St. Louis Blues, and it was just the biggest rush I had ever had. Uh, working in all of these famous arenas, you know, t- traveling with the team into these great big cities, uh, you know, hanging out at uh, you know a restaurant in Chicago on an off day and walking in and there sat Harry Carey and Jack Brickhouse, who at the time were the broadcasters for the White Sox and the Cubs at that time. I just wanted to be in the majors. So then when opportunities presented themselves, I just said no to nobody. I wouldn't say no. And when minor league baseball came along, you know, I jumped at it and, you know, worked hard at the craft to try and get a job in the major leagues if I could. Um, I talked to the baseball folks and explained that I was also doing NASCAR at the time. And, you know, I said, I might not be able to do all of the games, but they they went for that. You know, they said, okay. And, uh, you know, some seasons I did 120 games, 130 games one season. I only did 100 games, but they were kind enough to allow me to do that. Um, And then, you know, then the football job came open, and I saw it as a great job opportunity. The I did not have at that point. Again, this is going back 30 years. I did not have at that point the passion. I saw it as, man, I know college is big and it's Alabama, let's let's go do this. Let's pursue that. Uh, And then, of course, I had an opportunity to go back into the National Hockey League with the Nashville Predators, and I jumped at that. So I was always motivated to get to the major leagues. To me, that was the pinnacle. And, you know, thankfully, I've been there a couple of times in the NHL, and... You know, NASCAR is major league in their sport, and certainly on a collegiate level, the Crimson Tide is major league in their sport. So I have been blessed, but that's what motivated me. And the other thing was I knew I could not just do the same thing every day. That was going to be stifling. I would get stale. And for me, even to this day, you know, doing different sports – you know, doing men's basketball, women's basketball, football, uh, NFL games now for the last 10 years, all of that. I have to do different things. Uh, it would just, I, I would find myself getting stale if I did just one thing all the time.
0: Do you ever feel like you did it, that in mind, you would do something that you would consider taking a step back in order to take two steps forward?
1: Certainly, you know, uh, if that if I felt it was the correct thing to do, you know, I it hurt me. It hurt me to give up the National Hockey League. I mean, it literally hurt me. That hockey was my first love. Uh, but when the Nashville Predators had a management change, they brought in people from Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus, and that was a great thing for them to do. They needed to put people in the seats. And that management team said, look, we, we love you. You're a great guy, but you cannot continue to live in Birmingham. We need you to live here in that. We need our guy to live in our city. Now, some teams have different uh, thoughts on that. You know, when Mike Emmerich did the New Jersey Devils, you know, he was living in the Midwest, Uh, I was living in Birmingham when I did the St. Louis Blues and the Nashville Predators. But then the new management team said, you have to live in Nashville. And then they said, which was the ultimate deal breaker, they said, look, we we respect what Alabama is, but we're not going to lose our play-by-play guy on six or seven Saturdays to do a college football game. You're either the voice of the Predators or you're the voice of the Crimson Tide. You're not going to be able to do both. And that ended the deal because for me the Alabama job is untouchable. That sure. I will do nothing. I will do nothing that would take the Alabama job away. Uh, but otherwise, would I, you know, take, you know, would I start doing minor league baseball again with the chance to become a major league baseball guy? Certainly, I'm not too proud to, to backstep at all. Uh, you know, would I uh, do stuff like that? Without a doubt.
0: I want to talk about the Alabama job uh, and and getting that in 1989. I, I had read an article where it said not necessarily the the the, the most popular or easy thing for them to hire a, a northern guy with no ties. Uh, yeah. What was it like for you being on that side of it and having to kind of ingratiate yourself to a fan base and and learn how to make them like you in some essence?
1: It was it was very 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 difficult. Um, actually, I was. I was off doing baseball, minor league baseball, when the job opened up, when the, when the position became available and my wife would call me on the road and say, hey, such, you know, they're, they're making a change and so on. I never even applied for the job. I did not apply for the job. I felt that uh, a, a New York guy, a pro sports guy, with no ties to the University of Alabama, I had as much chance of getting that job as waking up being Pope the next morning. (laughs) It it just wasn't going to happen, and I wasn't going to waste anybody's time, because I knew it wasn't possible. Then, over the course of the next while, a short while, actually, it was, you know, those on the list are such and such, and, and Eli Gold, and they got like eighty or ninety applications for the job and then it was on the short list as such-and-such 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 and 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 Eli Gold and then it became those coming in for an interview are such-and-such such-and-such and and Eli Gold well you know as they as they as the old saying goes I was born at night but it wasn't last night (laughs) Uh, I realized at that point that something was I didn't have an agent So there was no back-channel discussions going on. There was nothing. I had not talked to a soul. And clearly somebody liked me. I didn't know anything about who, what, where, why. And we read in the newspaper who it was that was in charge of conducting the search on behalf of the university, a gentleman by the name of Tommy Limbaugh, who I didn't know from Adam's house cat. But I had a name, so I picked up the phone And I called him, and it was a great icebreaker because, like I said, I'd never talked to the guy anything. And I said, Mr. Limbaugh, my name is Eli Gold, and I don't know you, but I understand I'm coming in for an interview. (laughs) And we both both chuckled. And um, I did indeed get invited. He said, when are you going to be back in town? I said, I'll be back uh, late Sunday. And uh, he said, well, can you be here Monday? I said, yes, sir. So I drove down to Tuscaloosa. And I met with Wimp Sanderson, who was the basketball coach at the time, and Bill Curry, who was the football coach at the time. And as it, what happened was uh, I was offered the basketball job first. I became the basketball voice of the Tide for the 88-89 season. They then brought back a gentleman by the name of John Forney. John had done 29 years of football for the Tide. And then was released when Ray Perkins took over from the late Bear Bryant. One of the first things Coach Perkins did was was change up the broadcasts. And John was beloved. So they brought John back to do his 30th year. So I did basketball in 88-89. John did the 88 football season to give him 30 years. And he had been ill. He had had some issues at that point uh, medically. And um, I was then given the football job in February of 89. And my first football season began in, in September of that year. But it was totally a shock. I mean, absolutely. But what then to answer your question directly, what should have been the happiest time of my life in that interim time between getting hired by the university to do football and all was terrible because people were just so taken aback that this pro sports guy that had no ties to the school was hired and people were writing vile columns in the newspapers. People wrote terrible letters to the university. Uh, threatening to take the school out of their will. A lot of people, you know, with, with ties to the school would donate money or, you know, leave money after they passed away, what have you. And people were taking the university out of their will and stuff like that. It was just a very difficult time. And, you know, anybody who had the guts to sign their letters, again, this is before email. This is before, you know, any kind of social media. This is, but So people would have to physically write a letter and mail it. And uh, if anybody had the guts to sign it, which very few did, uh, I responded or somebody from the university responded to every one of them. But most were from the, uh, you know, the fellowship of the miserable who didn't have the guts to sign their letters. Thank God it worked out. And here I am 30 years later, but uh, 29 years later. But uh, it was uh, it was a very, very, uh, very pressure filled stretch of time.
0: What was that like from a from an on air standpoint for you too? Uh, because I'm cert- certain there's the, the personal side of that 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 looms large. But then, how do you approach that going into it, thinking like I got to be good, like I got to be real good, and I can't mess up?
1: Well, uh, I had done basketball the first year, and the team played pretty well, so that helped. You're always a better broadcaster if you have a good story to tell. So that was point number one. But getting set for that first football season. I was an absolute basket case. And then I made did something that I still do to this day, but on that given day, it was a mistake. On my first football game day, Bama was playing Memphis State, as they were known then. And I got to the stadium, Legion Field, like four hours before airtime. I wasn't going to get stuck in traffic. I wasn't going to have a breakdown. I wasn't going to have a flat tire. And if I did, I would have had time to walk to the stadium. I was, going to, I was not going to miss the start of that broadcast. Well, I got there, and then I had nothing but time to think. And I still arrive. You know, Alabama, we're on the air now three hours before kickoff, and I'm there an hour and a half before that. So now it's, it's the norm. But in those days, it wasn't the norm. And I'm there four hours before kick. And I was absolutely out of control of my emotions. I was shaking. And I mean this. I was shaking so badly. I could not write. I was trying to finish up some notes. I was trying to do whatever. I could not. I could not control the pen. I was shaking so badly. I was a basket case because I knew the degree of scrutiny that I was going to be under. I had already replaced Dan Kelly as the voice of the St. Louis blues, Dan Kelly, who was a hall of famer, one of the all time great broadcasters in the history of the national hockey league. So I had been in that situation on a major league level in the NHL, but this, and I wasn't shaking like a leaf when I went on the air for that first game in, in Colorado uh, that night But this first football game, I knew how big this opportunity was. I knew the scrutiny I was under. And thank God, Bama won big. And then a couple of weeks later, you know, they kept winning. And that made it easier. But, uh, I mean, I was literally shaking as though I had a medical issue that day. And somehow I got through that broadcast. And, you know, some people still thought I did a terrible job and, you know, I'm sure I, I am probably a bit better today than I was back in 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 1989. But um, thankfully, I, I had support of the right people, the folks who hired me, and you know, and I have managed to uh, continue on.
0: What's it like being the Alabama radio guy? Uh, and again, more from a broadcast standpoint than anything else. Uh, what kind of what kind of access do you have uh, at a program like that where I'm sure there's a lot of people that want access? Um, and I have total
1: access. Okay. That's a great question. Uh, I have total access. The print media and the nightly news guys from the ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox affiliate and all of that, they can watch only the first 15 minutes of practice. I and my color man phil savage who is the former general manager of the cleveland browns phil replaced the late ken stabler who had been my color man for for many 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 years um we have total access we can go in and watch the full practice we can go in and watch film uh in in the football building uh we have everything we need i will tell you this i however tend to try and fly under the radar uh I don't bother Nick Saban, although I've called him and spoken with him uh, on an unexpected time a few times. But, you know, I see him for the coaches' show. We, we see each other on the practice field. Uh, you know, I obviously tape shows with him and so on. But, uh, you know, I don't pick up the phone and call him at Tuesday at 2 in the afternoon okay. just to say, hey, uh, I don't do that. Um, I have also, you know, I don't bother our athletic director. We get along wonderfully. But, you know, I have never, ever gone to the A.D., even when I'm curious about something that's going on. I've never just walked into his office, which I could do. I've never just walked in and said, you can tell me, Pst, you know, let me know what's going on. You know, because I've always figured that if Eli doesn't know, Eli can't be accused of having said it. Sure. Uh, so I've, I have flown under the, uh, under the radar in that regard. But, uh, you know, I have a very close relationship with the university president's. Uh, and and the provosts and all of those folks who I deal with over the course of a season, the alumni association. So I do have total access. I don't abuse it by any stretch of the imagination, but, uh, you know, they, they realize that, uh, you know, being the voice of the tide makes you one of the most recognizable spokespeople for the, university and in many regards for the state people don't understand now you know in our state there is no nfl nhl major league baseball you know no no nba uh alabama and for their fans auburn these are the two major league franchises and more people see the state of alabama through the window of college football than they do for anything else so when you're speaking on behalf of the university it does put you front and center in a lot of different ways. Uh, so this is a job that I tell people, this is a job that I cradle like I'm holding a rare piece of crystal. You don't want to drop it. You can't hurt it. You've got to just want to do what's best for that beautiful piece of crystal. And that's the approach that I take with this job. It's, uh, it's really unlike uh, any other job, uh, I would think, of course, there are some out there like it, you know, Kentucky basketball, maybe UCLA basketball, certainly Ohio State football and a few others. But there are very few jobs at this level. So you really have to care for it very, very carefully.
0: I asked Bob Soce, uh from the Patriots this question when we had him on a few weeks ago uh, about Bill Belichick. And uh, you mentioned yeah. Nick Saban. So I'm curious, in, in the same vein, uh, has working with Nick Saban made you a better broadcaster in some essence just because of his mentality and the kind of questions you have to ask to get what That's you want to That's true. Know?
1: That is exactly right. Um, dealing with Coach Saban, he is the one and only coach I have ever worked with where I actually formulate my questions in my brain before I go in to sit down with him. When we had Gene Stallings here, Mike Shula, whomever, You know, we would walk into his hotel room and we'd always tape the pregame show, for instance, on a Friday night at his hotel or in his office or whatever it might have been, depending on where we were. And, you know, you'd sit down and you'd shoot the breeze for 30 minutes and then you'd say, hey, let's turn the machine on, the tape recorder. And then you'd turn it on and you'd record the show. Then you'd turn the tape off or whatever you were using after we graduated from tape, you know, you'd turn the machine off and then you sit and talk another 15 minutes and you'd discuss family, life, politics, religion, you know, what game you're doing tomorrow, what race you're doing tomorrow, whatever it is, you know, the, his wife would be there, my wife, our daughter, we'd all shoot, sit around, shoot the breeze. Uh, and, you know, you knew what the subject matter was and you knew basically what you wanted to ask. But you didn't know how you were going to ask it. You know, you just kind of flowed with the conversation. Nick Saban, there's no shooting the breeze, and, and we get along wonderfully. We get along wonderfully. He just walks in. We tape his show two hours before kickoff. And when I mean two hours before kickoff, when we play on CBS, and kickoff is at 2:37 in the afternoon. Coach Saban and I don't do our pregame show at 12.30. We do it at 12.37. <laughs> I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. Everything is to the minute. And he walks in. We sit down. I, we do the show. I say, Coach, thanks. I'm, I'm doing the outro, the end of my tape thing. I mean, we're coming back with more on the Crimson Tide. He's already up and out the door. But I have formulated in my mind the exact questions that I'm going to ask. And sometimes if it's a critical thing, I'll actually jot down the order of the questions I want to ask on the back of my business card and sit there with the coach and I'll hold, I'll hold the card of course, but I'll glance down because he will not, he, he does not tolerate stupid questions. Uh, and there are certain things that, you know, uh, you have to be careful how you ask for instance this past weekend here's a great example here the coach despises the c word the c word is compare he if you ask him to compare something he'll he'll bite your head off he just will not com- he doesn't want to compare players he doesn't want to compare teams atmospheres what have you he may do it privately but he will never do it on the air well, Bama was playing at Arkansas last Saturday night, and they have this kid Sprinkle. Last name is Sprinkle, he's a six six tight end, and he's outstanding. And Ole Miss has a tight end, Evan Ingram, who is one of the greatest tight ends in the country, six five, six, six. And I wanted to basically compare Sprinkle and Ingram, but I had to phrase it. It was like I was on jeopardy, you know, phrasing (laughs) it in the form of a question or so. I had to phrase it without using the C word. So I had to ask him coach the, the style of offense that Arkansas has with Sprinkle. How do they use him differently then Hugh Freeze uses Evan Ingram. So I got away with it without using the C word. And then he answered it. And indeed actually did compare the two men, but it was without me asking with the C word. So you got to be careful because he doesn't like certain things, but he also respects me and respects the job that I have. So, you know, I, he, he doesn't jump on me. Uh, but one day he did privately. We, we finished an, a pregame show a number of years ago, and we wrapped it up. And instead of him walking right out, he said, it's a good thing I like you. I said, why is that? He said, because that was a stupid question that you knew I wasn't going to answer. <laughs> and the question was, I compared Mark Ingram, the Heisman Trophy winner who had just graduated, to the incoming running back, Trent Richardson. And I wanted to say, you know, what will the folks see from Trent that they didn't see from Mark? How are they different? But I said, compare. And that was it. <laughs> I was, I, I was in, in deep doo-doo after I used the C word. But he's a wonderful guy. But, yes, he does keep you on your toes uh, to ask good, solid, meaty questions and ask them in the right way.
0: If I can go from there uh, to get technical from a broadcast standpoint with you, uh, describe what you do on the air and, and how you approach a broadcast in a game
1: that gives off
0: good play-by-play.
1: Well, it, 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 number one, no broadcast is difficult if you've done your homework. That's the ultimate bottom line. You've got to know the subject matter, and you've got to be prepared. You never know what's going to happen, how obscure the little factoid you might have. You don't know if the game's going to be delayed by lightning. You know, my buddy Gene Deckerhoff had that happen two weeks in a row earlier this season doing the Tampa Bay Bucks. In my 29 years, we've had four games delayed by lightning. Uh, and, you, and, and we don't toss it back to, others, to our affiliated stations. We keep it live. And we take phone calls and so on and so forth. you got to have your homework done. You've got to be prepared. You've got to have the bio information on the players, not only for your team, but for the opposition. Uh, then, of course, the style of play-by-play differs as to whether I'm doing a collegiate game, Obama game, or whether I'm doing, like in two weeks, Alabama's off and I've been asked to do the Michigan-Michigan State broadcast on national radio. There's a difference in how I do a Bama game, how I do a national game between two collegiate teams that I really have no tie to, and then how I do NFL games on Sunday. I can be far more critical on Sunday. I will not jump on an 18-year-old kid for making a bonehead play. I just won't do it. I'm a father. The next snap I take is going to be my first. Who the heck am I to jump on a kid who's playing collegiately, I have no right to do that. Will I jump on an NFL guy in a nice way because he's just dropped his third pass of the afternoon? Yeah, I will be far more forceful in my call there. I am not a homer by any stretch. Uh, As a matter of fact, there are people who feel I'm too down the middle. But every now and then I'll say, you know, and the good guys lead 34 to 13. Yep. Or I will do, you know, when we have a commercial break of a minute and a half, and last Saturday night, for instance, ESPN had breaks that were three and a half minutes. Well, I knew coming back that I was going to have two minutes to fill. When I'm on the Alabama broadcasts, I'm going to tell an Alabama story. I'm going to talk about an Alabama kid. I'll do something geared to the crimson tide. Uh, You know, when I'm doing the Michigan-Michigan state game here in a couple of weeks, I might tell uh, a generic college football story, uh, something about the Big Ten or what have you, uh, because you're dealing with a different audience. And again, in the National Football League, when you're on radio, you have virtually no time to tell stories because you take a break of a minute and 30 seconds in a time slot that's a minute 35 and when you come back, they've already broken the huddle and they're walking to the line of scrimmage. So there are different. There's a different science to doing the games depending upon what you're doing. But I personally, I'm very big on minutia, details. Uh, you know, we're on radio. I am. I talk about the color of the uniforms. I talk about the the pewter gray color of the sky. You know, I talk about you know, the train that's going by over there or the, you know, the lights twinkling from downtown or, you know, whatever it might be, you know, where they are on the field, standing on the, on the eye of the Razorback at midfield. Um, that sh- snap into the shotgun is not just a snap into the shotgun. The snap is belt high, chest high, shoulder high, you know, up to the right, whatever it is. I, I do a lot of, I'm almost over the top on my descriptions because we're not television and I'm not worried about the people who are at the game listening. I'm not listen, I'm not worried about the folks who are watching TV and are also listening to us, although it's I love having those folks on the broadcast. But I'm worried about the people who can't see what's going on, the folks who aren't watching, the people who, God bless them, have have lost their eyesight People who are in the car, in the truck, and you know, people in the hospital—they don't have cable TV. Whatever the whatever the deal, I worry about those people, so I go over the top on describing the ancillary stuff that's going on in and around the stadium.
0: Is there something that uh, you pay particular attention to, or that you find most tricky? And I only say that because. Uh this morning even I was listening back to uh our broadcast from this past Saturday and it would be something as little as there were a handful of times and probably too many for my liking that uh you know I you'd call a play, 7-yard gain, second and 3 coming up. He got a, he, you know he got out to the 42. Color guy would do his hit, come back to me. I wouldn't restate that it was the 42-yard line and it would bother me because I'd, sure, I I would think sure. that I hadn't reset where the ball was. You can never
1: say that enough. I try, particularly later in the game. I, I like to do it all the time, but I can't. Uh, I, you know, we. I try and set it and set it up prior to every single snap. I, that's my goal. It doesn't always happen, but particularly late in the game, I will make sure I do that. If the game is on the line, if it's you know, if it's close, if it's tight. Um, but no, I'm. I am never satisfied with the number of times that I have given the time and the score uh, and the, and the position of the ball, I'm pretty good at, but, uh, of, of making sure that's there on every snap, but, uh, no, it's, uh, that's what we do. You got to give that information yep. because the fans who aren't watching have to know where the ball is. I'm, you know, you, I'm I used to be not particularly good. I'd say he throws the ball out into the flat. Well, is it to the right side or the left side? Um, You know, and those are things I've improved on over the years. Um, I I reference things as though the fan was sitting with me. I talk about the far sideline and the near sideline. It's not the right sideline and the left sideline. It's the far and the near. You know, and they're heading to the end zone to our left that has the word Razorback painted across the middle of it. Just because it's there, and I'm describing it, that's what I. So I'm big on that stuff. Um, you know, over left tackle, some guys will say handoff, he goes off tackle to pick up seven. Well, did he go right? Did he go left? I will then also try and give the blocker, and my spotter is very good in helping that. You know, he goes over left tackle, picks up a, a gain of six, and man, Pierce Baker and and. Uh, and Bozeman did a great job uh, pulling out to lead the play, whatever it might be. Um, you know, so I try and really OD on the on the mini detail that brings the game alive. What do you
0: listen for most if you still listen back to stuff and, and when you really sit and, and critique yourself?
1: Uh, that's exactly what I listen to. Okay, I I, I listen to. I'll get upset if I said I didn't know where the ball was. If I'm listening to a, game, to a play and I said, well, what the hell happened there? Uh, I'll, I'll be upset at myself, and you try and make a note of not doing that again. I listen to Kevin Harlan, uh, who does, I think, one of the greatest jobs, uh, both on TV but in particular on radio. I have never, ever, and I love and listen to a lot of sports, uh, to my, for my money, there's nobody who describes things better than Kevin Harlan. The detail that he puts in uh, to a play—I mean, it's it, you're, it's alive. Uh, you know, he has it's it's something to behold. And I I don't care what game he's doing. I may not have any interest in it, but if it's him, I'm going to listen, uh, and I learn from him. So yes, I still critique myself very very. Very seriously, and uh, you know, the other day I—I I, I don't know why, but it was. I said, "Here's it's second and seven from the seven-yard line." Bama was going in. I didn't say second and goal. I said second and seven, and it was second and goal. And I got ticked off at myself, and uh, I corrected it for the next play. But I just got ticked at myself. You know, why do you do that after 30 years? Well, pay attention, damn it. You know, uh, so it's always little stuff like that that. Half 90% of the listeners didn't pick up on the other 10% probably didn't care, but I cared. So, uh, you know, you you, you work on – you're always working on something to improve.
0: At what point did you feel like you had confidence to, not just in your ability, but, but ability as a full broadcast? Uh, you know, there are still times where, where, you know, I'll walk away from something and go, I felt pretty good today, but I feel like I blew this segment or I didn't do this right. And, you know, if I sent a whole game to somebody, I wouldn't feel happy if they clicked the five-minute mark in the second quarter. Um, mm. are, are you Are you – uh, there's still times where I will know either.
1: when I get up if I've done a good broadcast or not. Uh, but you, you know, you're never going to be perfect. You're never going to be perfect. There's going to be that player who you miss call. I know this weekend coming up, I'm going to have a, a very difficult time in Knoxville. Their numbers are impossible <laughs> to read from up in the booth, yeah. high in the stadium. They've got. It doesn't matter if they're wearing their orange. With the, with the white numbers, the orange is so pale, or if they're on the road and they're wearing those pale orange numbers on the white jerseys, I, I know I'm going to misidentify somebody, and it might happen a couple of times. And you don't want it to happen, and you're working with your binoculars, and you got your spotter there too. But those jerseys in particular, which are throwbacks to Coach Johnny Majors, who decided that they were going to go with those pale numbers because when, they, when the coaches sent the coaching tapes to the other school to scout for the next game, as they used to do in the old days, uh, the, scouts, the coaches for the other team couldn't identify who the players were. Because they would give them these pale numbers in the days of black and white tape and film, and you couldn't tell who the heck was who. Sure. And they've never changed that. Uh, Now they do have those gray uniforms on occasion with orange numbers, though I don't know if we'll see that this weekend or not. Uh, So there are some times you just have to shrug and and go about your business. Um, I misidentified a player this past weekend. I'm sure I did more than one. Uh, And, you know, you felt bad about it, but uh, it happened. Uh, What are you going to do? You're, you know, you're only, you're only human. Um, So, yeah, I, I, I still get upset if I, if I blow a call. Uh, but hopefully you don't blow too many of them. And, you know, I always think to myself, particularly in a big game situation, be very careful. Take your time because, you know, these plays, especially with a, a number one team in the country, everybody is airing your audio, whether it's on Sports Center, whether it's on Fox Sports, whether it's on Sirius XM, whether it's whomever your calls live on not only at the bryant museum forever at on campus but your calls will be used in perpetuity uh, you know the next morning you're driving to the airport and there's you know braden gall and lou holtz playing your highlight on college sports radio on Sirius and you say to yourself well thank god i didn't blow that call so you know i'm i am always I, i'm always reminding myself to take your time i don't yell I, I will not yell. I'll change my voice inflection. But I really don't yell on the air. Uh, but you know, you're always cognizant of who's listening.
0: I'll leave you on that note because uh, I don't want to take too much more of your time because um, you've been more than generous. Um,
1: well, it's my pleasure. It's no problem.
0: <laughs> I, I, you mentioned voicing, and uh, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't go there with it. Um, your voicing uh, and your diction and the, the resonance and depth of your voice, uh, how have you developed that? Over the course of your career,
1: I've done absolutely nothing. Uh, I'm I'm very honest. I, I didn't have any formal training in that regard. This is my one and only voice. Uh, I I have always spoken clearly, uh, and I'll get grief from even from family members. You know, a lot of people will talk about the country of Italy, and I say Italy you know it's just something i've always done i've always enunciated um you know i've i i never had a terribly bad new york accent despite the fact that i let i lived there for 23 years but every now and then you know something will come out and on the air and i'll i'll physically stop on the air and i'll laugh about it i'll say something like hey you know who i saw yesterday <laughs> and i'll stop and i'll say where the heck did that come from? Brooklyn was 20, was 30 years ago, whatever. You know, I'll laugh about it. But, uh, no, I've always been able to speak clearly. Um, I watch a lot of newscasts. I, 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 I take pride in not slurring words and so on. But, uh, you know, what I used to do, it's funny. People prepared in different ways. When I was a younger guy, trying to learn how to speak clearly, make sure I was doing so and, and learn how to read copy, you know, wire service copy in the old days, or if somebody would hand you a piece of paper and read this right now and I had no time to rehearse or look it over. This is here's your your TMI, your too much information. I would sit on the toilet <laughs> and I'm serious now. And within arm's reach was a box of Kleenex. And I would take the box of Kleenex while I was sitting there and I turned it over and, you know, who the heck ever reads the back of the box of Kleenex. But I would grab the box of Kleenex, turn it over, and I would start reading it out loud. I'm sitting at home in the bathroom on the (laughs) toilet and I'm reading something I had never hadn't prepared for, didn't know what the heck it was going to say. And I learned I, I would always do that sometimes, not always in the bathroom, sometimes, you know, in the kitchen and read the back of the box of spaghetti or something. I was I would do a lot of that, just pick up stuff and read it out loud because you never knew when somebody was gonna run in with a breaking piece of news or something and you had to you know spew it out without having ever seen the copy. Sure. And so so I did that. But as far as my enunciation and my pronunciations, I am very I'm very fickle about, uh, very, not so much fickle, but I'm very, I make sure that I get the pronunciations correctly. Uh, I don't care if you're playing Hawaii, and half the names are Samoan, I take pride in being able to pronounce those names correctly, and it's, it's just doing your homework, Joel. It's no, like I said at the outset of our get-together here, no broadcast is tough if you've done your homework.
0: Eli Gold is our guest here on Play by Playcast, uh, voice of the Alabama Crimson Tide. If you want to hear Eli, by the way, certainly you can find uh, Crimson Tide broadcasts on the radio if you're down in that area uh, within the reach of their network, or if you've got the tune in radio app, you can pick up Alabama radio and, and hear Eli. The other way you can find him, and uh, this is both exciting and terrifying if you're a radio guy, there are entire, entire games, and I mean games, like lots of them that you can find on YouTube where people have ripped the Alabama games off of television and the radio and synced them up so you can go back and check them uh, and and relive the action of Eli Gold. But I, I mean check them too. Like, you could actually see, like... Well, was it really the 45, or did he get brought down at the 46, and uh, did he go right and he said left? Like, the mild, terrifying thing as a radio guy, uh, <laughs> but but if you want to hear Eli Gold, uh, there are a lot of archives. You can find him on YouTube if you want to do a quick study uh, or a long study in uh, the job that he does, uh, the description that he brings, the diction and clarity that he speaks with, uh, that's all available uh, very easily at your fingertips. Many thanks to Eli Gold for joining us here on the podcast. We're up against it time-wise, though, so we're going to get up on out of here. If you are a uh, college football broadcaster, best of luck to you this weekend. Uh, Or if you're just a broadcaster and you've got something going on this weekend, best of luck in your broadcast. We will see you back here next Friday, and I believe, I believe we're going to go NBA. Not confirmed yet, but I believe we're going to go NBA. Which would be the first time since uh, the early podcast, Mark Zumoff, we had on uh, back in the early couple episodes. But we're, uh, we're going back to the NBA, I think, next week here on Play by Playcast. In the meantime, for Eli Gold, my name is Joel Godet. Thanks as always to you at home for clicking subscribe and download. We'll see you back here next week on Play by Playcast. Hit it, Adele. <laughs>